0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger, your host. I am grateful to you for sharing part of your day with me on this journey to do money better. This week's guest has a message for you. Your stuff isn't making you happy. Less is more. And downsizing doesn't have to suck. That's actually three messages, but they're all related. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Graham Hill, who is the founder of Life Edited. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him. He also has two TED Talks that have been viewed over 7 million times. 7 million. I'm going to tell you more about him after I set a little context for our discussion about the way we live as Americans, about the, about the way we live in our homes as Americans. Maybe Canadians too. I don't know. I don't have data for them. But I do have data for Americans. Consider this about big houses, folks, about individual sprawl. The average house, the average new house today, according to the US Department of Housing and Urban Development in 2015, the average new house today is 1,000 square feet larger than it was in 1973. Okay? Listen to this. In 1973, the average new house was 1,660 square feet and it was there to provide housing for 3.01 persons. I don't know what 0.01 of a person is, but Let's roll with it for now. That meant that each person, the on average, there was 551 square feet per person in the new house in 1973. In 2015, the average new house is 2687 square feet and it provides shelter for 2.54 persons. That's 1057 square feet per person. It's a 60% in overall square footage and almost a doubling of square footage per people living in those homes. What's happened in that time? Have people gotten larger? Well, yes, they have, but that's a whole other story. We're building way bigger houses with way more stuff in it than we ever have in the past. Consider this bathrooms. In 1978, 74% of homes of new housing had two bathrooms or fewer In 2015, 86% of houses have 2.5 bathrooms or more. So we have sprawled, ladies and gentlemen. We have we have collectively decided, the marketplace has decided that we want a lot more space. When you have a bigger house, what does it mean? It means you consume more heating and air conditioning. It means you have more toilets that consume more water. Maybe you don't go to the bathroom anymore than you did in nineteen seventy-three. Well, I was four in 1973. I went to the bathroom a lot back then. But when your toilets are running, you're using more water, okay? So what else do you do? You buy more furniture. You buy more art. You buy more things to put on the floor, rugs or carpets or whatever. So we're just consuming tons more stuff and our houses are getting bigger. And look, I get it, you know? Like when I was a kid, theres I think there's two big things. I'm speaking as a guy, by the way. Two big things to demonstrate your status in the world the first thing you got to get is a cool car right so when you're when you finally start making a little bit of money get out of school you start making some money what do you do if you don't live in new york or where you don't need a car you buy a cool car and that tells people oh look he's got a car he's he's making decent money he's got a he's got a cool car and then what do you do you're a little bit older you're ready to settle down you buy a big ass house that should be the name of this week's episode, Americans and Our Big Ass Houses. And it's understandable. It is, quote unquote, the American dream. And our laws and our tax benefits are written such that it favors and encourages Americans to buy as big a house as they possibly can. This doesn't necessarily make us any happier. It just means we have more stuff to deal with on a daily basis. So let's get back to Graham Hill. Graham is a successful entrepreneur. He founded or co-founded, ran, and then sold both SiteWorks and Treehugger.com which he sold to Discovery Communications. By the way, Graham should not be confused with the legendary Formula One driver, the latter Graham Hill having been dead for over 40 years. So this is not the dead Graham Hill who raced cars. This is Graham Hill who is also co-founded Life Edited. What does Life Edited mean? Means to edit yourself, your positions, and your wants down considerably to achieve many benefits, including less chaos in your brain, more time for productive and happy living, and reducing your footprint on the planet. All those carpets, all that heat, all that stuff affects the planet. Now listen, while some of these topics have been politicized, this is not a political conversation. This conversation is about how we as individuals, as consumers can create the right kind of living space for ourselves and for our family that really optimizes our happiness This isn't about trying to prove how austere we can live. It's basically trying to say, how much do we need, making conscious choices about consuming the things that are really going to lead to our happiness. And by the way, when you look at some of the links to the apartments that Graham and his team at Life Edited have designed, including his 350 square foot apartment in New York City, links to which are in the show notes, and his 1,000 square foot house in Maui, these things are beautiful. They are beautiful gorgeously designed and proof that less can actually be more, that there is actually significant benefit to downsizing our lives. And kind of like how Tesla came to the market with a more environmentally friendly product that was all about performance and awesomeness, Graham small footprint architecture demonstrates that you can live quite well in a beautifully designed environment while reducing your impact on the planet and the chaos in your brain that's caused when you have too much stuff in your life. So this ladies and gentlemen is Graham Hill of Life Edited.
1: So it wasn't like a huge eureka, it just sort of happened over time. When you design something thoughtfully based around your needs and it's high quality and it's terrific i love that place and you know i don't know maybe i'm weird and that i somehow feel like i've largely avoided the status sort of affliction like i just i've made money i sold a couple companies but i don't feel like i need to have some ginormous mansion to show people that i have money and Very happy
0: there. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crazy Money Podcast. I am Paul Ollinger. Joining me today is Graham Hill, founder of Life Edited and treehugger.com. Graham, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, treehugger.com, does this make you some kind of crazy hippie guy?
1: Uh, no, it's, uh, the name's actually tongue-in-cheek, so it uh, is actually modern, and the whole idea of it was really that um, most media, I started in 2004, most media at that time, environmental media, was either very small labors of love or nonprofit quite boring and, and really primarily focused on the hippies. And I love the hippies. They're, really important, and they're <laughs> really important of all of this. But I wanted to create a new form of environmental media that would appeal to people that live in cities and people that wore collared shirts. Hippies are a tiny, tiny portion of our society. And I wanted to help sort of mainstream green.
0: I love it. So Life Edited and hugger have some things in common. Tell me about what you do, what your mission is, and why you started both these entities.
1: Um, so tree hugger, I mean I began to give you the reasons there, but it was mostly that I just found that environmental media was was all about inspiring by fear. And it was all uh-huh. about stopping things. And it was very focused, as I said, on the hippies and not designed forward. And so I wanted something that, in my mind, and from my research, I could see there's this incredible green world out there that was actually really tech-forward, uh, pro-business, and aspirational and cool and fun and exciting and and about yes and about. And so I wanted to do something that was about inspiring by hope that was really design-forward and that that would appeal to someone who lived in the city and that sort of stuff. And so that that's really where Treehugger. Came from and it it was one of the very early blogs. My friend Nick Denton of Gawker Media had a, a couple going at that point and he really pushed me to do it. I had had the idea years before in like 2000, but the blog technology is really what enabled it to happen and I just. I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time, and um, all the blogs were very incestuous and cross-linking. And so, <laughs> so very quickly, we were the biggest green site on the web and, and uh, had, had that uh, maintained that for a couple years at least until the big guys got into the game.
0: You eventually sold that company, correct?
1: Yeah, I sold it in, uh, amazingly in 2007 to Discovery, and it's still going strong. Yeah, yeah I guess I sold it 12 years ago.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about what Life Edited is, why you started it, and, and, and what your mission is?
1: Sure. I mean, the, the, my basic focus for the last decade, uh, roughly, has been around small living, and so Life Edited was the venue for that. So we're you know, small living evangelists in general and, and, and share it a lot via lifeedited.com and our various social media channels and, and my speaking. and. And then we did a bunch of architecture, like design for a bunch of personal projects, three of them, and then a bunch of stuff for appliance. And 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 the basic premise of Life Edited is an environmental one and a financial one and a happiness one. And the, 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 what we believe is that Americans in particular, and, and much of the world, but Americans in particular, North Americans, have supersized themselves over the last uh, half century or so. So we've gone from... 1,000 square foot average homes to 2,700, and we have smaller families. So it's about three times the amount of space per person that we used to have. Um, But that has not helped our finances. We actually have a lot more debt than ever. Um, It certainly hasn't helped our environmental footprints. We use about four times the energy we used to. And so our footprints have ballooned and all of this would make some sense if we were happier, but we're not. Happiness levels of flatlined, and so that didn't make sense to me. And when I looked around the world, you can see like uh, Europe, for example, has an, uh, their average housing size is a thousand square feet, and I don't I don't hear a lot of people going, "Oh, those poor Europeans and their terrible lifestyles." So the basic premise is that if you apply smart design technology and perhaps a little bit of behavior change that you can live a smaller, smarter life. That's going to reduce your environmental footprint uh, by a great deal. Um, will save you some money and that a smaller life is an easier one to manage um, and ultimately a happier one. And so that's the basic premise of life. Edited.
0: What drove that expansion of space over the past 50 years?
1: You know, I think as a, I I think, I don't think we feel bad about ourselves. I, I think that for <laughs> we've been around for a long time. And I think for the longest time, probably until maybe the mid, middle of last century, more was always better. Mm-hmm. We didn't, have, didn't have much stuff. But um, at a certain point, more isn't better. And I think we sort of reached that point. And so... It's, hard. It's, a, it's counterintuitive, but you know, there, there's something that just makes sense about having the right amount of stuff. So, I don't know, if you just think about like the average, our houses will have like a living room and a media room. That's a, like a very small detail, but if you think about it, it just, doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. You don't need those two rooms. You don't need multiple living rooms. And all these things cost you money and in a way separate ourselves as well. I do think there is um, fundamentally, we are uh, interdependent and, and social beings and we need some privacy and some time alone, but for the most part, we like to be around people. In a way, if you look at the, the housing, housing, and how, what we were striving for and still exists to a great, to a great extent, So the suburban lifestyle is you're spending a bunch of time driving, you know, from your work alone in your car, and then you come into perhaps a gated community, and then you come into your, you know, garage, and then you come into your house, and your house is so big that your whole family is spread out. And then even if you are in the same room, you're separated via technology because everyone's on their phones or their iPads. (laughs) And so it's all very alienating. Right. separating us and i think we actually do want to be together and so the, the part of the happiness factors you know you just there's something like you want to be with your family you want to be with your friends you want to be in the same space and, and we're unfortunately attracted to this i think we're somewhat scared of intimacy perhaps um so we're attracted to sort of more space and you know it's a complicated thing i think there's also status as a big part of things like but by uh, having a big house, you show people that you're rich, and, and that somehow makes you feel better, although ultimately it probably doesn't. It's a complicated thing, but I like people that, that live small, that that have lived big, um, are often very happy that way. I, I, that's, that's certainly my experience.
0: The points you're making are very interesting, and one of the reasons I started this podcast and started writing about the topic of what happens when you make money and buy stuff is because I went through, I went through this cycle. I'm still in the cycle myself. And I mean, when I grew up, I was one of six kids living in a house with eight people and three toilets. And I always wanted privacy and I always wanted my own toilet. And when I made some money, I was like, Oh, I get to buy a really big house and I bought a giant house. And now I'm in a house with four people and eight toilets. And one of them is always running my water bills are crazy. We got more space than we need, and I really didn't know what I was biting off till I owned a big house. And now I'm like, oh wow. Well, I don't want to just move to move. But if the house was made of play doh, I would I'd give half of it back to you. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, you're you're a great you're a great example. I think there are, there are a ton of examples, and I you know I did it myself
0: for sure. So is everybody who lives in a 5,000 square foot house a bad person or are there are there things that we can do to address the problem without picking up and moving?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think generally people can probably live smaller and as a result, they're going to be happier, save some money, lower their footprints. I think that's that's clear. And so, but, you know, it's like different strokes for different folks, and, and, you know, different people have different ways of living and things that are important to them and, you know, if I'm i I'm like I'm like a sculptor or something, yeah, I might I might need a really big studio. I've welding and all sorts of equipment, and or if I have a huge family or I don't know. But so yeah, of course you're not a bad person, and part of this is just us sort of realizing you know we're we're fumbling along and sort of cluing into what what really matters to us. And, and so you know, I I wouldn't say anyone with a large house is a bad person, but they might consider. <laughs> downsizing the next opportunity, you know, sure. certainly, and, and I think like my sort of uncle is this guy, Mo Joyal, um, said years ago, and I don't think I listened to him, but um, he, he was a successful entrepreneur and ended up having places in San Francisco and Toronto and Maui, and, and he said least life. He said he, that's sort of what he came to, and, and I, I think it's, it's really true. Like, there's a real tendency for us to want to own stuff, but you buy a lot of stress and uh, remote management and money and, you know, I think there's uh, there's something to be said for just uh, keeping it easy on yourself. And, and um, I mean, personally, right now, I own, I do, I built this amazing off-grid place that I'm talking to you from in Maui, but I still have my 350 square foot apartment in, in New York. And let me tell you, having a landlord is a nice thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You don't have to deal with the problems when the, oh, when mean, the toilet's leaking.
1: Oh, so I don't know. I'm big. I'm a big advocate. It's, it's not for everyone, but I think as a my sort of proposal is that overall, overall, not everyone, but a lot of us, we, we could we could do a lot better by living smaller.
0: Can you share a little bit more of your story, your background, and how you came to this realization? Because you didn't start, you didn't come out of the gate as a minimalist, right?
1: No, not really. Not really. I mean, I basically I, I moved from Vancouver. Um, I fell in love with the internet while I was at Emily Carr Product Design School in Vancouver and uh, moved down to Seattle, bumped in with my cousin Tish Hill. And we set about starting an internet company to build websites. This was 95, like so really, really, really early. People were right. confusing, confusing their email addresses with their website addresses, kind of thing. Uh-huh. And we did some good work, landed a Microsoft job, did some good work and sort of went from there to millions of dollars of business from Microsoft, grew grew it to 60 people over three years and sold it. And so I was 28 and had a bunch of money. And, um, you know, society, as you saw, really pushes you towards spending, you know, what you should have is a big house and a fast car and all sorts of country club membership and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what sort of what it pushes you towards. And so I did that and had a 3,500 foot home and nice car and et cetera, et cetera. And then I just ended up, I've always loved New York and I sort of, I had a breakup and I don't know, I just ended up moving to New York. And um, I started to do the same thing again, I had a big, 1,800-square-foot loft that I rented, and I ended up having a bunch of roommates. And, and then I ended up, I fell in love with a Spanish woman named Olga Cisplugas and and um, lived in New York for a bit. And then she went back to Barcelona, and I followed her and um, moved in with her there to her small place. And, and it was in the back room of, back bedroom, spare bedroom, small, that I started Treehugger. And then I got her involved because she was clearly a good a good person to work with, and, and, and we realized that we didn't have to be there. Like, we set Trihagrappa as a virtual company. We realized that we could easily travel, and so we took off, and we lived in Buenos Aires, Bangkok, in India. We were in Toronto. We traveled to Morocco. We were in New York. We were, like, all over the map, and we just had two bags. Like, we didn't even have to check. And we had amazing experiences, saved a lot of money, got a lot of work done, and, and just clued in that we were very happy with very little, little stuff. And so when we moved back to New York, instead of getting a big place, we moved into a 350-square-foot place in, on uh, Kenmare and Center in, in Soho in, in Manhattan. And it was great. I got terrific memories of that tiny little place. And so it just sort of, uh, that was really sort of, sort of where it came from. And so it wasn't like a huge Eureka, it just sort of happened over time. And then I just realized that I was not very happy that way. And so the various small apartments, i did a 420 square foot one and a 350, which I still own in Manhattan, which is for sale by the way, are great. Like when, when you design something, Thoughtfully based around your needs, and it's high quality and it's terrific. Like I love that place. And, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm weird in that I somehow have, I feel like I've largely avoided the status sort of affliction. Like I just, I've, I, you know, I've made money. I sold a couple of companies, ended up selling Tree Hugger later on. But I don't feel like I need to have some ginormous mansion to. Sh- to show people that I have money and I'm very happy there. So, so I've loved it. And to be honest, I built um, I built this place, which is a thousand square feet, four bedroom, two and a half bath. Partly to show, you can do it for families. Um, and it, the place works to me, but it's also much more of a monster cause just because it's bigger, and it's also in a tropical environment, et cetera. But um, there's something incredible about a small, beautiful apartment and and editing your stuff down so you you know where everything is it's really easy to clean it's really easy to organize just everything works
0: and I love it Yeah I've seen pictures of the place on lifeedited.com that's lifeedited e d i t e d.com for our listeners who want to go check it out the place in New York and the place in Maui are both incredible It's one thing to live that lifestyle. It's another thing to create a business around it. What do you guys do at Life Edited? Are you an architecture firm? Are you consultants? What do you do?
1: Yeah, effectively. I mean, I've never, I'm sort of, I'm taking a little break now because I'm not sure that real estate development is for me. And although I studied architecture, I've never wanted to build an architecture firm just because I think it's a really hard way to go. Um, And my hat's off to people that do it.
0: It worked for Mike Brady. (laughs)
1: There you go. So I'm not sure i mean, I'm what what's next now, that's what we did do. We did basically mostly architecture we did a little raising money and doing some some uh, buying and selling some renovating some real estate and evangelizing kind of thing but i don't know i'm I'm sort of reevaluating trying to think about what I want to do next, probably something in the environmental space but I just, I'm not sure I have the this, this stomach for it. I think I'm i am very much a perfectionist. And um, so product design is great because the, the pain of the, you know, I'm sort of an artist. Like I, I, I really get into something and, and I want it right and I can really, spend, it's stressful, it's painful. And, and, but at least with the product, um, when you nail it, then you can replicate it hopefully a lot of times and and it really sort of pays off architecture is just unless it's prefab which we are very interested in it's just it's often sort of one-off and they're just too many decisions and too much too much to go wrong and I don't know it's just my hat's off to people that can do it but it's it's hard for me this this house almost killed me
0: (laughs) how did it almost kill you
1: it just was such a it just was such a challenge to put together to figure out the design. it's on a, it's on a sloping site it's you know, right. the weather unfortunately there's some fantastic people in, in Hawaii there are also um, some less than fantastic people with terrible work work ethic and terrible communication mm. skills and So it's a real, um, as an sort of largely coaster 20 years in New York, it's like it was really challenging to to get this project to happen.
0: Do you think, I mean, you're talking about the pain of making, of building something that's really transformational and very different from the way things are done right now. Is there a more practical way for everybody to live smaller than to just pack it all up, throw everything in the dumpster or recycle everything rather and... uh, (laughs) You know, move into a 350 square foot apartment. I mean, like, is a less radical approach, could that have a more, a broader, more effective impact if we all just went, if everybody just reduced by 20% instead of oh, trying to. Absolutely. 20%. absolutely. And I, I
1: try to be clear about that. I'm not, you know, it's like wherever you are, if you're living a 5,000, okay, well, you know, maybe you can do 3,500. Like, right. I'm not saying everyone. And like I said, it isn't about micro-units. Micro-units are a solution, and they work very well for certain people and, and mm-hmm. not well for others. You know, If you're yeah. a family, you're obviously not living in 350 square feet.
0: <laughs> I, I couldn't sell that to my wife. I mean, she's but pretty cool and pretty flexible. Yeah, I think
1: um, you certainly, regardless of the size of your space, stuff is part of it, and I think that everyone could – most people can do some editing um, down of their possessions that will make their lives uh, um, have lower impact and save them some money and certainly make them a lot easier to manage. And so I think sort of going through your clothing, your kitchenware, your sports equipment, your tools, all that sort of stuff, I think is a, is a great thing to do. And I think if you are, if you are moving consider a smaller place and like you know resource furniture that we work with for years do amazing transforming furniture and you know the, the room that i'm sitting in right now is uh it's maybe uh 10 by 8 or something like it's a pretty small mm-hmm. room but it's got a nice window seat and then i'm sitting at a table uh, which is on the back of one of these resource furniture uh murphy beds and so like five minutes before the interview i strap my duvet on close the bed and and uh, put my laptop out on this table and now i've got a great little office and so this this is a bedroom but also a perfect little office studio kind of thing and so i think editing your stuff down and and taking advantage of transforming furniture is great you know another example would be here we have a covered lanai so that that doesn't count as part of 1,000 square feet, but we have these also from Resource Furniture, these great, they're sort of like these long, almost like twin beds. And can move them around, they have these movable backrests and, and then two transforming coffee tables, and these are just, I don't know, maybe four feet long or something. And they, you grab a little lever, and then they can go from like six inches high to 30 inches high, something like that. And then you can also extend them. They're just hidden inside, you just sort of pull on one end, and there's some little leaves that sort of automatically come out. And so I take those two rearranged couches a little bit, and I can have a sit-down dinner for 20 people.
0: Yeah, the so, pictures uh, are pretty insane. The transformational power of some of that furniture is something I've never seen before. You can host great. 10 for dinner in your 350-square-foot apartment in Manhattan. That's yeah. radical.
1: Exactly. So here it's obviously a bigger scale, but we have this you know wonderful living room with, with coffee tables, and then we have a ginormous dining room table that seats 18 or 20 and then or sometimes we have it as, as a pull down screen and a projector and so we have like this great 100 inch screen like, you know for movies at night and that's all happening in, in in the one space and so I think editing your stuff down and taking advantage of uh, transformational furniture can work in sort of any any space and certainly helps if you if, if you downsize
0: some. So going back to sort of your, your awakening or your, uh, do you have a word or a, a way you refer to the inflection point in your life where you <laughs> became
1: smaller liver? I mean, I, I don't think a specific moment it just sort of happened, but yeah, that's the eureka aha moment, I guess.
0: So um, you, you wrote an op-ed in the New York times that sort of discussed the ennui of wealth and the the pain of possessions and things, and you took some shit for it. I mean, people kind of said, well, who are you, some wealthy guy to tell me how to live without money? Did that seem fair to you, that just because you had made some money, you didn't have the right to opine on sort of our, our social malaise?
1: Yeah. Well, listen, it's the internet. Everyone's a complainer. So that <laughs> to start with. But no, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was very fair. I mean, there are a lot of things I could be doing with my life. and um, Like
0: making more money.
1: Like making more money, exactly. And uh, the sad part of human behavior seems to be anyone who tries to do something good, just people like to jump all over them. But my response to that would be like, hey, hey, I'm sorry. It's certainly better to be able to choose to downsize than to have to downsize. And I very much respect that, and, and I'm very conscious also of the incredible fortune that I, The leg up that I had to allow me to get to where I am. Now, I've made some smart moves. I've certainly worked my ass off, and I've been a good guy. And so I, I have a part in my success. But I also grew up in a middle-class family, and I was able to borrow $6,000 from my dad at 25 years old to sort of help get this company started. And I, I had opportunities that a lot of people don't. So, so I do recognize that but the people that say sort of rich guy, you can't say anything. Well, I'm sorry. I actually have seen, <laughs> I, I've had no money also. Like I've been a poor student. You know, I've actually, uh, for the people that don't have money, I, I've seen both. So I, I do have a, a more of a perspective than others. And, and listen, the fact that I'm even thinking of thinking about this instead of just, you know, doing models and bottles and, and just, Trying to make more money doing whatever the hell with, with no intention of trying to make the world a better place. I don't know. I think you can give me a little credit. I really have lived this also. I'm, like, I'm not like, I've lived in these small spaces for a long time.
0: <laughs> You're not just doing it to become a, a lifestyle blogger.
1: No. So I don't know. Whatever. People, people like to complain. So they, they can complain.
0: Models and Bottles that I think I need to start another podcast with that title <laughs> right there so I can hit both ends of the spectrum talking mm-hmm. about. Oh, by the way, do you still have that Audible.com audio player that you uh, had when you were in Seattle? <laughs>
1: yeah. I think I maybe recycled that at some point. But yeah, what was
0: the hardest thing for you to give up when it came time to reduce all the clutter and the space in your life?
1: I mean, I think generally the hard things to give up are are, are sentimental ones are, are probably very tough. And then, and just the ones where you're like, oh, I might I might need that. Uh, you know, I think those are hard. My, my recommendation for people is to sort of, if you're going through stuff, you have like three boxes or three piles. One's yes, I'm gonna keep it for sure. One's no, I'm gonna sell it, give it, recycle it, throw it out. And then the maybe box, just put stuff in there and then write the date on it and then check back in three months or six months. And if you, if you can't remember what's in the box, you probably, that'll help you put it in the no pile. And, um, you know, if you can, but you haven't used it in that three or six months, then you know, that might help you put it in the no pile. But yeah, you know, that'd be my, my, my general approach, but, I I suffer from the same. It's hard. Editing's hard. It's hard to let stuff go. It's hard to like, okay, I only want, I only want to have six shirts and I have nine shirts and I feel like I like them all. Yeah, it's tough.
0: My mother-in-law keeps trying to give us her mother's china and silverware. Can you call her for me? (laughs) Tell her that we don't have space in our giant house for her china?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you definitely hear stories about people who who literally lost everything in like a fire, and right? How it's like hard, and then very, liber- very, very liberating. And I yeah. could, I could, I could certainly see that, certainly like physical or digital. You know, if I think about my bloody iPhoto library and how disorganized it is, in a way, it would be, it would be terribly sad, and also really liberating <laughs> if I just vanished,
0: right? Yeah. But I mean, when you got rid of all your analog stuff, did you digitize all your old photos or what did you do with that?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. There were tons of like scan my photos, I think is one shoe box is another. You can just, you can send negatives, slides, pictures, whatever, VHS tapes. Uh, you just send it in and they can digitize all of it. And that allows you to be a digital background instead of a physical background. Right.
0: What I did find interesting when you're talking about how in the last 50 years are we've started to take up three or four times the amount of space per person. I do think in some ways we don't value some of the trappings of conspicuous consumption that previous generations did like the China and the silver. And, you know, I mean, like when we got married, it wasn't, I don't even think my wife wanted 15 mm. settings of silver and stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet, even without that stuff, we're finding ways to fill up our houses you know
1: well i mean what's what's really changed, and then part of the reason for this excess is that there are a lot of factors that like so Madison Avenue got very good, very, very good at selling us on the idea of us needing x, y, and z product. I like think they that they've really learned how to do it, and then we through you know, globalization, cheap labor offshore robots techniques, production techniques, volume, big box, etc. We figure out a way to make stuff a lot cheaper. Efficient and then, shipping. And then we figure out, you know, with big box stores and, you know, retail and, on, and online retail and, you know, we figure out how to, to sell stuff to you and make it very, very convenient to get stuff to use and, you know, FedEx and UPS, etc. So we've become, Very good at enticing you to buy things and to get them to you.
0: Along those lines, do you find it hard to find builders or contractors that want to build the kind of places that you want to build? Because it seems to me like if I wanted to live in a certain part of town, I can't find a house that's smaller than 2,500 square feet. Like builders only want to build, they want to maximize square footage on a lot because that's how they get paid. You're
1: absolutely right. So that's a really tough one because it's the it's the it, the logical financial thing to do, unfortunately, in, in today's society is if you have a lot, you built to the maximum square footage, so and then
0: you buy a bunch of stuff because you got the square footage, you got to put furniture in it, and yeah, art and art and artifacts and TVs yeah. and everything in every room.
1: Yeah, uh, get knickknacks for
0: what is your outlook? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you sort of guardedly neutral and what will be done? Clearly there's a lot that could be done. How do you feel about the environmental and um, materialist future of the United States?
1: I don't know, Paul. I don't know. It's, it's, it'd be very easy to get quite dark about it. Like, you know, most, 99 point whatever it's all species have gone extinct and we are very smart and we are very stupid um so i don't know you know can we find some approach new technology or or have the political will and economic will to start really drawing down the carbon so that this doesn't go really sideways yeah maybe but it, yeah, I don't know. It's easy to think, but it it, could, it could, easy to think that um, yeah, we there are very rough times ahead. I like to be optimistic, and uh, it's just a really hard problem because it, it's the tragedy of the commons. It's the right, you know, that doesn't really what I do does it really matter that much? You know that that is that's a tough one to deal with. It uh, is. Well, I just was going to say, you know, that the. the yeah, well, the U.S. Has, has put more carbon into the air than, than most, I believe. I think maybe, maybe any. But there, we took advantage of that and we built this incredible economy and this lifestyle, et cetera. And so, you know, it's, it's in a way understandable for when we're trying to say, well, come on, India or other uh, countries that are sort of coming up that, um, to, to lower their footprints, them to be like, F you guys. Right. In the last 150 years raped and pillaged and, and, and now, now you're just going to turn around and tell us that we have to. So it's a, it's a very complicated thing between countries and then people. So it's tricky, but know um, yeah, let's be optimistic. There are a lot of people working really hard on this problem and a lot can change. And, you know, you can see strangely like China, because it can be more sort of dictatorial about things like they may make some real real progress because they're having real issues with air quality etc so you know a few countries really leading the way and then you know, get some good good leadership in our own government on that front and uh yeah maybe we'll maybe be in a good form
0: well you do read more about minimalism and I mean, even, I don't mean the tiny houses programming, but I mean, you read a lot about minimalism. You, you read about the fire movement. Do you think those are trends or just things that journalists are writing about because they seem to be click worthy?
1: I think that, and, and this is quite positive. I think that luckily our society is intuitively understands that we have supersized ourselves and is looking for a smaller, simpler life. Why do I think that? Just anecdotally from talking to people, but also, uh, you know, just looking at my TED talk on my first apartment, it's like 5 million views. And the op ed in the Times was like the most read thing on the New York Times, entire New York Times site for over a week. And so, you know, this isn't that sexy. Um, So the fact that there's that much. Interest suggests to me that our society is interested. And, and just like having been par- part of interviewed for that minimalism documentary on Netflix, and the number of people that have seen that, that, I just know that so many of my friends and people have seen that. that there's clearly a very large uh, intuitive interest in living small.
0: Yeah, that's where I first became aware of you. And then the more I dug into you, I was like, oh, this is cool stuff. I mean, you're doing, when I think of minimalism, I don't think of design. You know, I think of, I, I think of living a pretty bare, austere life. But, you know, you're, you're saying, hey, you can have everything you want. Not every single person on the planet can. But, I mean, you can live a small life without depriving yourself of the things you've come to expect. Of nice design of a home theater of a comfortable bed, etc.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Can you recommend any other great great books on design or small living in addition to the gentle art of Swedish death cleansing? Have you heard about this uh, one?
1: I, I you know I just know the name but I but I haven't uh, I haven't read it. I think the you know the Mary Kondo stuff is very popular and and people really like that. I mean, the nice thing about this is that it's mostly nicely integrated into the more general uh, design sites and, and, and media in general. So I, I'm, just, I'm blanking this morning for what um, a good suggestion on that would be.
0: Graham, the theory when you downsized was that you were overwhelmed by stuff and space. And so you wanted to reduce your living footprint, live smaller. Are you happier? Do you know that? And in in what ways are you happier?
1: Yeah, certainly. Like, I think probably the easiest thing to understand for for most people might be just thinking about going, like, spending some time in a a nice hotel. There's a a thing, everything's sort of nice, and and it's not too big, and you have all your, you've you've edited your favorite stuff to bring with you, basically. And it's just going to be a very calm, like, it just, there's a certain calmness to it, which I think is really, really lovely. And that's, there's something right about it. It's not, you know, not too big, not too small. And so, um, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I'm having, I'm still like minutiae to deal with and a like, fair amount of it. It's just like,
0: <laughs> So you've reduced your space by what percent and how much have you improved your happiness by percentage wise? <laughs> I need metrics, man. I need numbers.
1: <laughs> metrics. I, have no <laughs> I have no idea. But it's the, it's the way that I want to live like, period. In a way, I've also realized that the amount of stress that it brings, because the amount of things that I have to worry about, because it's bigger, because it's got a landscape, because it's like, you know, I, a small piece of land with an airstream on it, and <laughs> I'd probably be pretty much as happy.
0: Right. What is the appropriate number of toilets per person in a house?
1: So I think part of the part of that question is how the, the bathrooms are formatted. I think a great thing to do is to actually separate out the components. So if you have a, a little toilet room and then you have a sink, maybe in the hallway or something, and then you have a, a shower or bath kind of room, I think then you reduce the traffic. Like it's Right. And if someone's using the toilet, someone can still use the shower.
0: Like uh, when my sister was curling her hair for most of the 1980s, and I was yeah. jumping up and down outside waiting to use the yeah. toilet. So
1: I think that's, uh, that's sort of what you, what you want to think about. Two, I guess two and a half bath in this place for a four-bedroom kind of thing. and That certainly works great.
0: Is there a designer or a movement, a way of living that's inspired you the most in the living spaces that you've created?
1: I mean, it's inspiring people for me, um, Buckminster Fuller, certainly. Uh, he would be sort of, sort of one of the biggest. I think what, the stuff that he has to say is amazing. I think on more a uh, philosophy level, I think that Stuart Brand says some terrific things. My friend Saul Griffith, it's always been very inspiring to me. My friend Eve Bahar um, does some really cool design work. I mean, the great thing about media these days is there's 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 so much of it, and you come in contact with so many different things and that it can sort of come really from anywhere.
0: So now that you've gotten rid of all the um, uh, of all the exogenous terrors in your life, uh, material goods, you're just left to face reality with no other distraction. Is that intimidating?
1: yeah that's right um, and i I would advocate strongly for uh, uh, meditation practice It's a great way to just sort of get used to just sitting in what is, and I think that's a very powerful thing, not having to change anything but just accepting sort of what is. I do think the that this also brings up an important topic that we haven't talked about, and that's your digital life. Um, mm. Is more and more of an important topic these days, and I, I think all of these approaches can really be applied to your digital life. The amount of space, the amount of stuff, we also can be incredibly overwhelmed with our with our digital lives, and so um, you know the amount of friends that you have on these various networks, the amount of time you you spend on them the you know whether you let notifications rule your life or you really shut them down partially mm-hmm. or entirely what i would like and i haven't found where to do it yet but and it, it would be a hard thing to, to to make happen but you know i'd love to have half an hour in the morning half an hour in the afternoon half an hour in the day kind of thing and the rest of the time not really bothered and this whole instant uh, expectation for instant response to things. And, you know, the whole thing is ridiculous. We built these crazy distraction machines that just rule our lives, that, um, you know, more and more dinners, I'm just blown away or just time with friends, just blown away with how much distraction there is with with these phones. I think it's really, it's not good for us. I think if you really tune into to to how you feel, generally, if you spend time on social media, it's not necessarily a positive thing. And it certainly is a a time sink that takes you away from like more uh, critical thought and and, and spending time, you know, reading books and watching documentaries and like just more in-depth focused things versus these little tiny bits of information that, you know, it's the whole thing's a nightmare.
0: Now seems like a pretty good time for me to plug my Instagram account, which is <laughs> All- or Ollinger. please go there and like, no, I think you're right. But you know, you say you, you would like to find a half an hour in the morning and half an hour in the evening. Why haven't you? I mean, you're a pretty purposeful guy. I mean, you started a, you started a bunch of companies, one of which yeah. is you're walking the walk with the way you live. What's prohibiting you from uh, reducing your screen time?
1: somewhat the dopamine hits that I get from it and actually and, right. and the technology. I mean, what I'm, what I was referring to was I was hoping there would be like a setting so I could just like set it. Okay. This is it.
0: Oh, right. Yeah. Uh,
1: I could go into airplane mode for those periods and, and, mm-hmm. uh, hey, and I sh- certainly should. I think it would make, would make my, make my life generally better. I mean, I'm, I'm not too bad in, compared to most I, I would say, right. but I, I and, and, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, like, you, you, you know, I am giving a, <laughs> giving an interview on that will be part of a podcast that will be listened to on the phone kind of thing. Like, there's some great stuff about it and, and, sure. and you could be following really interesting things and learning and, and a, there's amazing, I think laughter is a very important part of life and there's some of the funniest things on the internet. And and so there's, you know, there's definitely some great parts of social media, but I think in the same way we could, we've supersized ourselves and uh, we could, we could pull that back a lot. And I think that would be uh, good for us.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, I agree with you on the meditation, even though I've been meditating for over a year and I'm still an asshole, but I'm, I'm not as much of one as I used to be. It's definitely been, it's definitely been a big, contributor to some improvements in my life so i so i agree with you on that well man hey graham i really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today where can people find out more about life edited
1: LifeEdited.com okay. is a full site with a ton of information that's a great place to look if you're looking for me to speak um, i'm represented by uh apb i mean i mean we have all the instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. So if you just do a search for life editor, you'll
0: track that down. Yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, the videos and pictures of both his apartment in Manhattan and his home in Maui are super cool, thought-provoking and interesting from a architecture porn perspective. So it's worth checking out. Anything else, Graham, that you wanted to uh, talk about?
1: Yeah, or- environmental plug. Very, unfortunately, a lot of our society thinks if you recycle, that's sort of, what it means to be green, but it's actually unfortunately a very small component. And so I would really encourage people to consider if they have a car moving to an electric car. Basically in all states, you have an option to buy green power. If you can't get it through your local utility, you can buy RECs, which are renewable energy credits, which effectively do the same thing, effectively get you green power. And those are some more powerful things that you can do also, we say vegetarianism um, or full vegetarianism is an off- awesome thing to do for your health and for the planet. Um, so those are a few things that are actually powerful and can really reduce your footprint. Um,
0: so, so you so, can live in a big house and still, still have a, a better impact by uh, not eating meat and buying renewable energy credits and reducing what you use, not just recycling what you use. That's right. Well, I hope it's a great day in Hawaii. We appreciate you joining us and look forward to more great things from you in the future. Thanks for your time.
1: A lot. It was very fun talking to you.
0: There you have it, Graham Hill. Thank you so much, Graham, for your time. Keep doing your great work. Uh, by the way, I want to be honest about my toilets per person ratio. I grew up in a house with three toilets and eight people. That ratio is 0.375. And I now own a house with four people and eight toilets, which is 2.0 toilets per person. And so. Let's see. What is that? want we'll to do the math real quick. 2 divided by 0.375 equals... That's a 5x increase of my toilets per person. I'm guilty. And the next time we move, we're going to reduce our footprint. I swear, I promise, my head's going to feel so much better when I have a smaller house, beautifully designed small house, because I'm also very, you know, I'm a sensitive, deep person who needs to be around beautiful design. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you to Mike Carano, our producer, editor extraordinaire. If you have suggestions for me, shoot me a note, paulollinger at gmail.com. Go to my website, paulolinger.com slash events to see where I'll be performing comedy soon, hopefully near you. You can also buy my record album, Well, it's not on vinyl or wax. It's a digital recording of some shows, a show, some jokes I told in New York City West Side Comedy Club. It's called A Live on the Upper West Side. And you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find digital audio content. If you like what we're doing here, please rate us, subscribe, write a nice review of the show. I hope you're having a great day. Go out there and do something nice for somebody else. Bye-bye.